Welcome back to Beyond the Uniform. I'm Justin Asiri, and my goal is to help members of the military community thrive in their post-service career and life. Today's episode number 403, Buying and Growing a Healthcare Company with Daniel Reese. I realized I did not have the skill of creating something from scratch. I didn't have any business ideas that were revolutionary. It was almost just like I was trying to make something marginal, marginal improvement on existing service or something like that. Um, and so I think that led me a bit more to the search fund model of um, you're not creating it, it's already been created, but you are helping build it into a more professional organization. So, Well, my guest today is an entrepreneur, but not the type that you usually think about. Uh, we've had a couple of guests on the show who have done what is called a search fund, which is actually what I thought I was gonna do most of my time at business school. Rather than coming up with an idea, which many people struggle to do in starting your own company, a search fund enables you to raise money to go out and find a company, usually a mom-and-pop type shop, something that's doing well, that could use a new owner, new management, and you actually purchase that company and then grow it from there, which is exactly what my guest today did. He purchased a company that I believe he said uh, you know, it was uh, – I don't know, let's call it 20 employees when he bought it. He's grown it to many more than that than 20 employees since he purchased it. We talk a lot about that, his advice on search funds, his advice on entrepreneurship, what it's like managing outside of the military versus inside of the military. Just really a lot of great advice for those of you considering entrepreneurship. As always at beyondtheuniform.org, you'll find more information, show notes for this, resources, everything we discussed, 402 episodes just like this one and more. So with that, let's dive into my conversation with Daniel. Well, joining me today in Brentwood, Tennessee, just close by Nashville, my guest is Daniel Reese. Daniel, welcome to Beyond the Uniform. I appreciate it, Justin. Thanks for having me. Here's a quick rundown on Daniel's background. He's the CEO of IntelliTriage, which is the number one provider of tailored nurse triage solutions. After graduating from the Naval Academy, he served on nuclear submarines and then attended Harvard Business School. Daniel Reese acquired IntelliTriage through an entrepreneurial vehicle called a search fund, which we'll talk about in this episode. So let's start today and we'll work a little bit backwards. If you ran into another Academy grad who said, hey, what do you do for a living? How do you answer that? It's a great question. I think today I would answer it that I run a healthcare company. A year or two ago, I would have answered it meaningfully different. I think I'm in the actual company now and, and operating it day to day. So that's what I do. But when I was doing the search fund, it was, it was a bit more difficult to explain. And we'll talk about what the search fund is, but could you give a sense of where's the company today in terms of just size? Any numbers you're comfortable sharing headcount or just something to give people a sense of the scale? Yeah, absolutely. We are coming up on employee number 100. So we're right at that century mark. I think as of today, it's like 96, but hopefully by the end of the month, we're over 100 employees. We're still a relatively small business. I mean, most of our employees are part-time versus full-time. It's about 60-40 mix of part-time, full-time, so that should give some sense of size. And when you bought the business, about what was the, the size of the company? So at that point, we were just under 50 total employees. Now, we needed more than that. For staffing, we were a little understaffed at the point that I acquired the company, but we were just under 50. Wow. It's got to feel amazing to have doubled, you know, doubled the company since the time of purchase. 
Yeah, it's been an exciting past two years almost, and I don't think anything can quite prepare you for making the day-to-day decisions of running your own business until you're actually doing it. But it was a really fun ride, and I really enjoyed it so far. So hoping that continues. And I know we've had, I'll list in the resources, we've done a couple episodes on search funds. We'll talk about what that is, but maybe rewind the clock to business school or even the point at which you found out about search funds and decided for this. And in particular, I wanted to talk about, I know we talked about this previously when we connected, rather than starting a search route out of business school, you actually gained some experience. And I'd love to hear about that decision and what that experience was like. Yeah, absolutely. So going back to the point I found out about search funds, because it was a completely foreign concept to me and was super intriguing from the moment I heard about it. So I found out about it at my first year of business school. I connected with a, a guy named Jim Southern, who was one of the founders of Pacific Lake Partners, who is now my lead investor in this deal. Really appealed to me because it sounded like an interesting way to get motivated and kind of people who otherwise may not be drawn to small businesses into the small and medium business-sized community. So my family business was this SMB, as they're called, small to medium-sized businesses. And I worked there for a period between my military service and my business school actually starting. And it was, I was only there about six months, but it was just amazing to me the kind of things that someone who is thinking creatively and not in the day-to-day can do to a small business to help it grow and be successful. So I didn't want to go back to my family business, but I thought that this area of small to medium-sized business businesses and operating and running one of those was really interesting to me for my career path. So that's kind of how I got sucked into the search fund community. From there, it was just really meeting a bunch of the different people in the community, whether that was at business school or at conferences, and just kind of fell in love with the community of, of people. Really, It really feels like a tight-knit community that everyone wants to help each other and doesn't feel that competitive, even though it can be a little bit, and just kind of got sucked into to wanting to do one. Now, to your point, right after business school, I was pretty intent on doing a search, but then I kind of saw something that I, at the time, considered a bit more attractive. So there's a firm, or it's called Garnet Station Partners. They were managing a company called Cambridge Franchise Holdings. It was two guys, Alex Sloan and Matt Perlman from HBS, a couple years, maybe a few years ahead of me, who had bought, um, I think it was 13 Burger Kings while in business school and started operating them and then started to consolidate them. And they were just growing like wildfire. I mean, it was, it was kind of crazy how quickly they were building and buying new Burger Kings. And they kind of gave me the pitch of, doesn't sound like you're going to enjoy the search process of the search fund. Feels like you really want to run a business, which is what I wanted to do. So come do that for us. Let us search for the companies for you to buy and we'll turn it over to kind of different managers. And the goal is for me to be an operating partner there at some point. But even then, when I got there, it just felt like I was still working for someone else. And great guys, they did really well on that investment and then a lot of other ones. But it just felt like I really wanted to be running my own business, not running the business for someone else. So that's when I decided to launch the search fund. How long were you there again? So I joined right after graduation in June and then launched my search fund the next June. So I was there right around 11 months. And what was your life like during the search? If you could kind of paint the picture of, and remind me again, how long it took for you to ultimately find the company that you were going to purchase? Yeah, so as far as length of time goes, it took me from June of 2018 until we closed in November of 19. Um, My first conversation with Susie, who was the founder of IntelliTriage, was in December of 18, so about six months after I launched the search. Wow. And my search was a little bit different. I launched like June 6th of 2018, had my first child June 26th of 2018. So it took about a month off, but met Susie pretty early in my search, and then it just took a little bit of time to cultivate the relationship and learn enough about the industry to really feel comfortable acquiring IntelliTriage because it's a little bit outside the normal search fund model as far as the type of business it is. 
And so maybe share how you met this business owner, but also just kind of what was your day-to-day life looking like during that search period? Yeah, during the search, it varied quite a bit. I would say that there's kind of a few buckets that you spend most of your time while you're searching. One is just like trying to think creatively around what industries could be attractive. I spent more time in that bucket than most, I would say. The second is doing actual outreach to companies and and seeing who's interested. And then the third is really doing diligence on companies that are interested in going to meet them, making site visits, trying to understand what their business is and and how it works and if it's a good business to buy. So those are kind of the three major buckets. I spent a lot of time in the first bucket and then a lot of time in the third bucket. And I didn't spend as much time as the outreach of some of maybe other people would be familiar with if they're kind of somewhat familiar with search funds. So a lot of my time was really self-directed as far as just what's interesting that I should look into, reading a lot of news articles, trying to understand really niche industries within these broader segments of healthcare that I thought were interesting, and then really diving deep with owners, whether I thought I could buy the business or not. My approach was, if I'm interested in this industry, if I can talk to a business owner in the industry, whether or not they want to sell, I'll have 15 conversations with them and then have no intent to sell because each conversation, I'm going to learn way more than I could possibly learn from reading something on Google or talking to a trade association president or something like that. So I spent a lot of time either talking to owners, talking to vendors, or talking to customers in the space, or researching the space more generally. I think what's always fascinating to me about search funds is that so many different muscles, like the skill set that you just described in vetting, evaluating, making sure that the company that you're purchasing is the right one, the skill in raising money for these investors who are backing you to search and then to purchase the company, and then the skill that you're employing now, which is running and growing a company. And I'm guessing that that last one is what you wanted all along, maybe more of your wheelhouse. But how did you develop those other skills around fundraising, around basically doing due diligence as a single party on a company? Yes, I think this is where my year at Garnet Station really helped me, um, especially in this diligence piece. I had never bought a business. I really didn't know how to do diligence on a business. I kind of thought it was like, oh, what's a diligence checklist? And you apply that checklist across the, whatever business you're trying to buy. And so the year I spent with Garnet Station really helped me understand not the nuance, but the surface level of how to research a business and do diligence on the business when you're trying to acquire it. I mean, people in private equity or banking could go 10 layers deeper than I could go. But really, for me, it was just trying to understand the first or second level of information that I could get in the process to make it attractive. On the fundraising side, I want to say that it's not a skill set that's like that difficult. I think if you have the appropriate background, the money just kind of tends to be there. So if you went to a good business school, especially if you're a military person or a veteran, you just have this kind of belief in you that some other people don't have because you've already led teams, because you've already, you know, you're in some ways you're in the people business of managing people. And that's a lot of what running a company is, is really just managing your team. So I think that fundraising part was a skill that just kind of, there is some salesmanship to it, which I think I had a little bit of background with my family business being a sales organization. But I think more than anything, it's really hard to not get fundraised if you have the appropriate background and if you can put a deal together. So the area that I really wanted to focus on development for me while I was at Garnet Station was that diligence piece and understanding how to put a deal together and what that can look like on the back end as far as running the company. 
And one of the things you said earlier that I really liked is you said when you're at the family business, you realize when there's someone outside the business who can actually work on the business rather than being mired down in the business, there's a lot that can be done. What's your sense right now on like how much of your time is spent on the business versus just the running of a hundred person organization? And is there anything that you do to try to carve out more time to be in that creative space, to be thinking bigger picture than just the day-to-day that's so, you know, gravitational pull to just get things done? Yeah, so I think that is my biggest weakness as someone who's managing a growing business, which is I find myself getting inundated with the day-to-day a lot. You know, I'm a pretty detail-oriented person, and so I can get caught up in something that doesn't necessarily, shouldn't, you know, I should spend 15 minutes on, not two hours on some piece of data or something like that that I really want to understand a trend on. It's become more evident this summer than ever before. We brought on an intern from MIT Sloan School of Business who is working with us this summer, and she has just been a complete rock star because she's not inundated with the day-to-day. And so it's become really evident to me of like, hey, I do need to take a little bit more of my time and focus on the larger strategic vision and kind of the big picture versus the really nuanced stuff. It's also something my team needs to do a little bit better at. We're still, again, a pretty small business. And so it's really easy for myself, my VP of ops, my executive vice president, and my chief nursing officer to get mired in these day-to-day activities when we really need to be focused on a little bit more bigger picture stuff. So some of the tactical stuff we've done just over the past six months or so is set aside weekly, three times a week, an hour long for us just to get together and not talk about the day-to-day stuff, but talk about a little bit more um, big picture stuff. So anything that has to, has to be at least kind of three months out. Mm. So that's kind of our criteria. Another thing is we have now a two-hour monthly meeting where we really review the big things on the horizon. And then for me personally, I have, I think, three or four calendar blocks on my calendar now, which is like, I don't get rid of them. It's time for me to think about different things. So as an example, on Friday mornings, I have a two-hour block where I'm just solely dedicated to people stuff, whether that's an operating structure change or a new compensation plan, whatever it is, something that's a little bit more strategic instead of day-to-day. And that's helped me a little bit, but I think if you talk to my board, that would be the one thing they say that I really need to focus a little bit more big picture and a little less day-to-day. What about as you look back on leadership from the Naval Academy and on submarines, what's changed in your approach to leadership now running a fairly large business and I'm curious kind of about like what changed or other skills you had to bring in or even things that you had to unlearn or purposely get rid of from your past. That's a really good question. I think as probably most of your listeners will will resonate with them. A big misconception I think about the military is that you say it, people do it, right? There is some part of that, but at the end of the day, really good leaders in the military are building consensus and, you know, leading by example and not just dictating exactly what needs to be done. I think that is very applicable in the business world. I think people who have kind of that authoritarian power in the military and haven't kind of developed the skills of leadership of building by consensus. They may have had a tougher time in the private sector because you just don't quite have that direct power over them. But that has not been the majority of the leaders that I've seen come out of the military. It's pretty common that people are understand leading by example is the way to build consensus and, and really getting other inputs and being collaborative. I will say that coming from the military, everyone is very mission driven or, or at least more mission driven than I think the private sector. The private sector, to some people, it really is just a job. You know, they're there for the paycheck. They're there because they need to make money and it's not a mission 
driven type of thing they're wanting to do with their life. It's not their big goal. They're working to live. So there is a gap there on how you influence people around kind of, hey, this is something that we all care about. Let's get behind it and do it together. I think I, I really saw that whenever I was at Cambridge Franchise Holdings with the hourly workers, frontline workers at Burger King and Popeyes. They were really were just trying to make money. There wasn't a whole lot of mission that they could get behind. I see it less at teletriage. I think nurses by their very nature kind of are mission-driven people similar to military and they, they want to make a difference and they want to provide good care. But you do get the occasional person who's just trying to make a little bit of extra money and they're a little bit more difficult to manage and you have to really figure out ways to incentivize them in ways that make sense for them, not just trying to rely on that sense of mission to get them to do what you need. Mm. First, I'm wondering, you know, for our listeners, could you have done this without business school? I think people have done this without business school, right? I think it tends to be easier, much easier to fundraise if you've gone to business school and have an MBA title. Again, I don't think it's impossible, but I do think there is, especially in the more traditionally funded search world, it's almost a prerequisite at this point. Again, I've seen some people do it without it, but I I think it's meaningfully more difficult to do without an MBA, at least on the fundraising side and the type of search I did. There's a different kind of, so I did what's called a traditionally funded search. There's a self-funded search model where basically you don't raise capital until you actually acquire the business. So you don't raise money during the search. You don't get paid. You don't have any benefits like that. And you only raise capital at time of acquisition. And I think that is easier to raise capital for because you're actually raising it on a deal versus raising it for a search. That's where I've seen it be more successful. And do you have any resources that have helped you professionally? It could be a book. It could be a workshop. Like I'm just kind of curious things that have benefited your career or even life outside of work that you'd recommend to listeners. Yeah. So for search funds in particular, I think getting as familiar as you can with the ecosystem is really beneficial. Stanford has a search fund study that they publish about about every two years. That's great. Chicago Booth has some good resources. There's a couple of those. If you type in just kind of search fund, that's good. The, the HBR book by Roy Siodkoff and Rick are, is really good for a kind of a tactical guide to buying a small business. One of the things that I spent a lot of time thinking about was starting a business versus buying a business. So trying to be a bit more entrepreneurial and actually starting a business versus buying a small business. If you're inclined to the the more entrepreneurial route of starting a business, there's a book by Peter Thiel called Zero to One. And it's basically talking about taking something from nothing to um, a completely new idea as opposed to iterating on an existing idea. And I think for me, it actually steered me more in the direction of a search fund. I realized I did not have the skill of creating something from scratch. I didn't have any business ideas that were revolutionary. It was almost just like I was trying to make something marginal, a marginal improvement on existing service or something like that. And so I think that led me a bit more to the search fund model of you're not creating it. It's already been created, but you are helping build it into a more professional organization. So, But I do recommend that book, even if you're considering a search fund. I really appreciate that distinction, though, between the honest assessment of like where your skill lies and realizing it's a you know, different different skill set or one that you don't want to develop of coming up with an idea. But correct me if I'm wrong, like the story that I tell myself about you is that you were good at managing people, you were good at growing things, and so why not put you in that seat as soon as possible rather than trying to find a killer idea and spending five years figuring out if that works or not. And I could imagine why that would be appealing to so many of our listeners. Yeah, I think that I don't know that I knew I was good at growing things or managing people. I thought that that was more likely than my ability to create something new. But yeah, for me, that was the big draw is I can get into an organization and make a difference almost immediately. There's definitely a lot of learning that you have to do in any new organization, but there's some also just basic things that I think most 
good leaders and managers can start implementing right away that will help the organization. And so that appealed to me as far as getting in there and getting my hands dirty as quick as I could. I'll ask the same question for search funds, but let's just start broader with entrepreneurship. If someone listening is an entrepreneur or they aspire to be one, is there any advice that you would give them about being a successful entrepreneur? So let's see. First off, if you are an entrepreneur and you started a business, good on you. Congratulations. You took kind of the biggest leap and just like trying to do it. I don't know that I, again, have that ability to do it. What I do think that even with a search fund, so it's entrepreneurial. Some people call it the search fund entrepreneur, but I think it's being entrepreneurial is you have to be willing to kind of take some risk and you have to be willing to bet on yourself. In a lot of ways, especially if you're doing a traditionally funded search, investors are investing in you, the person. And so if you're not willing to have a lot of confidence that you can do it and take some risk yourself, no one else is going to take that risk. And so I think that's a big skill set that, and again, I don't think that's something some people say, oh, you just have self-confidence. I think it's a skill set that you work on over time and you're able to build some self-confidence. I think that's one that is very useful because there's going to be really tough times, whether it's during the search or whether starting the business, like no one has it just straight up into the right trajectory. There's always a lot of bumps along the way. And so being able to persevere through that, understand why you're doing it. And I would say the first few months of me operating in Teletriage were a bit rocky, but I was still having a great time. It wasn't clear that we were going to be a really growing, thriving business two years later, but I was still having a great time doing the day-to-day stuff. And I think that's something also to just keep some perspective on is you're doing what you want to be doing and there's a reason you enjoy doing that. So keep that in perspective even when times are not as smooth as possible. And specifically, if someone's thinking of starting a search fund, any lessons learned that you would pass on or advice, even if they're considering this as a career path? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing I always try to tell people when they're considering a search funds is, number one, search funds kind of fall into different categories. Learn what those are. So self-funded searches, traditionally funded searches, sole sponsor searches, like those are three different models that you need to understand the pros and cons for. I have a really good friend of mine who I talk to at least weekly who did a self-funded search and our mindsets were just very different and they both were really aligned with what we were doing. Had I had his mindset doing my type or he, mine, doing his type, it wouldn't have worked. So I think becoming familiar with those models, understanding those is really important. The second thing I would say, especially in a self-funded search, or excuse me, a traditionally funded search, you have to align with your investors. You really need to be honest about the type of search you want to do, about the type of company you want to buy. And a lot of people, I think, get worried about being told no, like, no, we don't want to invest in you, or no, we're not going to fund this when they're launching the search. And to me, you're just kicking the can down the road, because if you're worried about that now, you're definitely going to be worried about it when bringing that type of deal to your investor group. So my kind of advice is always just be very transparent with the, your investors on the type of search you want to run, the type of business you want to buy. And I think things go much smoother that way. That's great. What advice do you have about the decision between going it alone, as you've done, versus with a co-founder or even several co-founders? Yeah, you know, I or partners, I should say. I had a very specific type of search I wanted to do. And I think that if I had a partner, we probably would have had a little bit of conflicting ideas on how that should operate. So to me, it just made sense for me to go at it alone. I think one of the biggest things that I heard in business school was like doing a search can be really lonely. And so that's oftentimes why people sometimes get a partner. Number one, it feels a little less risky if you have another person in there with you. And I think some of the data shows it is actually a little less risky. But number two is it gets really lonely. You know, I had a wife that we'd been married for seven or eight years whenever I launched the search and I was having a daughter. Like I wasn't worried about that part of my life, the social part or feeling lonely during the search. And I also had a lot of buddies doing search during the time. So I, I could 
call Mike five days a week if I wanted to, and we'd chat for 30 minutes, and it was like I had a partner. So I think there's ways that you can kind of protect against some of that. But I also I do think there, if you have to find someone who you have a complementary skill set with that really is aligned with what your vision is, you guys have kind of created the vision together, then I think it can be really beneficial. The biggest thing I always kind of say is if you're trying to bring someone else onto your vision, it's going to be some friction. If you guys build your vision together on the search, then I think it works smoother. I had a couple of friends from Stanford who experienced that where it just didn't work and they broke up their partnership. But I think that would be my advice is really put some thought into what you're gaining and not just trying to de-risk it a little bit. Man, that's such a great statement. I wrote that down as you were saying it, but the thought of co-creating a vision rather than trying to bring someone on, I feel like there's so many applications of that in leadership and beyond just the search use case, but I think that's a powerful concept. I always like to keep the last question open-ended, which is either, what have we not talked about you want to make sure that listeners know, or what are some final words of wisdom you'd like to leave with listeners? I think there's one thing that I would be remiss in not mentioning in any public forum that I'm able to get, which is a VA program called Voc Rehab or Vocational Rehabilitation. I'm sure that a lot of your listeners are familiar with it, but a lot are not. It's basically a program when you get out of the military, if you have a VA rating, you can apply for Voc Rehab and they'll essentially pay for your school. And there's it's really broad application. It's not a super cumbersome process. I mean, there's obviously some paperwork, but it's not super cumbersome to go through. And I've had several friends who have gotten out of the military, had disability ratings, and then just didn't apply for it. So they had to pay for their own grad school. I mean, they had GI Bill, stuff like that. But I mean, it really is free to you and the education is because the VA pays for it. So I think that's something that I just want to bring a bit more awareness to. That program is fantastic and I highly recommend it. The other thing I would say is if any of your listeners are interested in learning more about search, I think one of the best things about the community search fund community is it's a lot like the veteran community. Reach out to me and connect with me on LinkedIn or connect with any other military person on LinkedIn that does search. Hopefully they'll get back to you and, and we'll talk with you because it's something there's a lot of nuance to. And, you know, I think that I had a lot of people who took an hour or half an hour out of their day to chat with me. So I'm always happy to do that with anyone who's interested in learning more. Awesome. I appreciate that. And for listeners at beyondtheuniform.org, we'll have links to IntelliTriage where you can learn more about what they're doing. I'll include links to Voc Rehab, Vocational Rehab, Peter Thiel's Zero to One, all the resources that Daniel recommended during our conversation. Daniel, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I appreciate it, Justin. Thanks for having me. Beyond the Uniform is written and produced by me, Justin Asiri, with the help from our Chief of Staff, Steve Bain, our Editor, Lex Brown, and our Head of Social Media, Janelle Hanf. We are an all-volunteer organization and would greatly appreciate your help in any of the following ways. First of all, spread the word. Beyond the Uniform has over 380 podcast episodes and 15 on-demand webinars, all offered for free. Help us spread the word on social media, at military bases, or whatever gets this resource in front of the men and women who need it. Positive reviews on iTunes go a long way towards this as well. Second of all, sponsorship. Beyond the Uniform relies on sponsorship to keep us going. There is so much more we'd like to do, but just don't have nearly the resources to do it. If you know of a company that would advertise in any way with Beyond the Uniform, please send them our way. Third of all, donations. If you're in a financial position to donate, you can find more information on the support section of our website. At our website, beyondtheuniform.org, you'll find over 380 episodes categorized by industry, functional role, and more. You'll also find both free and for-purchase resources that take a deeper dive on topics related to career growth. Thank you for your support as we aim to help members of the military and their families thrive in their post-military career in life.